Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's so good to see so many of you. I hope you're uh, highly anticipating a great uh, Christmas in the next couple weeks. Uh, we, throughout this Advent season, have been looking at the four angelic visits in the Gospels. And this morning, it's the fourth Sunday of Advent, which feels a little weird, because basically that's meant to say that there are... Um, one of our candles is not lit. Look at that. The four candles are meant to represent that um, the four Sundays of Advent are over, and so there are no more Sundays until Christmas. However, Christmas is on a Sunday this year, my, as my son pointed out to me in the, in the front row. So it's a little misleading to say there are no more Sundays until Christmas. Uh, but nevertheless, we're just a few days away now. Uh, and so this morning we're going to look at the fourth angelic visit uh, uh, in the Gospels, you know, that God sends angels, this time to shepherds on a hillside outside of Bethlehem, to tell them of the news of the Savior who is born in Bethlehem, who is Christ the Lord. So let's read together from Luke chapter 2. We're going to read the first 20 verses of that chapter. Uh, you can follow along in the Bible if you want to, and if you don't, it's okay. It's going to be on the, the screen behind me, and it also is printed for you in your worship folder. And so we can all kind of read together and, and take in this passage, okay? So let's read about uh, this very familiar story about shepherds. And I know all I can think of when I read it is Andrew Peterson and Behold the Lamb of God singing the song. You might think of Linus in the, the old Peanuts Christmas movie uh, with his blankie intact, you know, reciting this part. So what a very familiar passage, uh, but very, very important for us. So let's read, okay? Beginning in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. (laughs) The Son of God came into the world and did not have a place to stay. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger." And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, They made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. This is God's word. Again, a very familiar passage of Scripture, and there's a danger in that, is that we can become so familiar with it, that we fail to see just how powerful and how radical it is. The problem with the way we celebrate Christmas 
is how terribly we minimize the meaning of it by our sentimentality. Uh, somebody uh, tweeted this. I think it was um, Scotty Smith who tweeted this week. You know the song, have, have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas? And his tweet was, don't you dare have yourself a merry little Christmas. There's nothing little about it. Right? So there's a danger in, in minimizing through sentimentalism exactly what's happening here. This passage won't let us do that. It just absolutely won't let us do that. There's some really important things we've got to see here. And what I want you to see, three things that I want to kind of talk through this morning. And the first is I want you to see, because this is the fourth week now, and there's a pattern that has emerged. I want you to see the first instinctive reaction of the shepherds to the angel's visit. And if you look there, you'll see it's fear and unbelief. They're afraid. Okay? When the angel came to Zechariah, he was afraid. When the angel came, you know, so... The first instinctive reaction on the part of the shepherds is fear and unbelief. But the second thing I want you to see is by the end of the story, I want you to see where they are by the end. And in verse 20, we're told that they are, they are glorifying and praising God. There's joy. They're, so they've transitioned from fear to great joy in Jesus. And that's the same transition that I'm praying will happen in all of our hearts this morning. And then the third thing then we have to talk about is, well, then what got them from fear to joy? What happened in the course of the story that that turned their fear and unbelief into great joy. And those are the three things we want to look at, okay? So follow along with me, if you would, in the outline that we've given you there in your worship folder, and begin just with this. First, we all live like these shepherds in fear and unbelief, okay? We've looked at four angelic visitations so far. And in all four of them, the angel, when they came to the person involved, started with these words. Every time, you can look, fear not. All four times. And the reason, the reason's obvious, isn't it? That the visceral reaction, the emotional reaction of the people to whom the angels were sent, whether it be Zechariah or Joseph or Mary or even here now, these shepherds was fear. They're afraid. They're troubled. They're scared to death. What is less obvious is why they're so afraid. And so if you look closely at all the stories, and even this one, you'll see, The mistake would be to think that they're afraid because of the angels. That's not true. They're not afraid because of the angels. So we have to ask them what caused their fear. And there is a theological explanation, I think, for what's going on in all these stories where these people just are so afraid here at the outset. And these stories that we've been reading in the Gospels actually are echoes of an ancient story that is deeply imprinted upon the psyche of every man and woman and child in this room. The story of the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, if you remember the story, were created for communion with God. Genesis says they walked and talked with God. For them, God's glory shone around. God's glory, the light of his presence and his glory was life for them. It was breath for them. It was the very air they were meant to breathe. And then one day, we're told, Adam and Eve decided to be their own masters. They sinned against God. And in sinning, everything changed. And on that day... When the glory of God came down and the light of God shone in the garden, Genesis says they were afraid and they hid. And God comes to them when they're hiding. And he says, Adam, where are you? And this is how Adam answered. And I just want you to just listen because uh, this is so powerful, I think. He said, this is Adam's answer to the Lord. I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid. Because I was naked. And so I hid myself. I mean, do you know... How much psychology is in that one phrase? I mean, listen to it. It explains our life so perfectly. Listen to it again. I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. 
And so there are a couple of principles that I want you to see here. The Bible really teaches us a bunch of really great things. It teaches us first what, why we're so afraid. That this, this visceral emotional reaction to the, the angels coming down, the glory of God shining, and why there's always fear when this happens. Everywhere in the Bible when God comes down, there's fear. And the principle that really gets played out in the Bible, I think, is, is we're afraid because of exactly what Adam says there. I was afraid because I was naked. We're afraid because we're naked. Well, what do I mean by that, okay? Now, the story of Genesis teaches us that there was a time when Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. In other words, there was a time when, when they, were, they were naked and they really, the way it's presented, they really didn't even know they were naked. And then when they sinned, we're told their eyes were opened and they realized they're naked. They, you know, oh, I'm naked. You know, they somehow realized they were naked all of a sudden, but something had happened. They were no longer unashamed. They, they were naked and they felt shame. And so they sewed fig leaves together to try to cover their nakedness. And so when, it, when the Bible says, you know, they realized they were naked, it's the Bible's way of saying they began to experience shame because of their nakedness. They suddenly had the feeling that something was wrong with them. You know, they were naked and all of a sudden wrong. And I really believe that's why the, the shepherds are afraid here. Of all people, they would have felt naked. They would have felt wrong before the light of the glory of God because they were despised by the wider society. They were the lowest of the lower class. They were the riffraff. They were the criminal element. And as we try to think about this in our preaching meeting this week, the best contemporary example of what a shepherd, how a shepherd would have been characterized in that day that we could come up with was the carnies. You know what I'm talking about when I say that. I remember when the Citrus Festival used to come into town every year when I was a kid, I was absolutely terrified of the people who operated the rides. I was. I was sure. I was sure. They smoked. They had tattoos all over their body. They had teeth missing, you know. And I was sure. I was absolutely convinced that the appearance of these people would signal a crime spree in our city and a rash of child abductions. (laughs) I lived in southeast Winter Haven, in case you were wondering. That was supposed to be funny too, but it's not really, you know. That's the shepherds. I mean, that's the shepherds. So of all people, they would have felt wrong, but it's true of all of us. See, what the Bible's trying to teach us is this is true at a deep level. For all of us, we feel naked and wrong. And let me, let me offer just one piece of verifiable, you know, scientific psychological evidence. If we were to take a poll, I'm kind of, I'm kind of not, well, let's do it, Okay. A poll of hands. How many of you in this room have had the dream ever in your life that you wake up, you, you, you show up at school or to work, and then eventually you realize you don't have any clothes on? By hands. The rest of you are lying. Okay? Everybody's had the dream. At least 75% of the people in the world have had the dream. You show up at school and you realize, I'm in my underwear. This is absolutely wonderful. Right? We can debate the, the scientific, you know, reality or scientific correct, correctness of that later. But you know, what is that? <laughs> Why is that such a common experience? The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2 says, he gives the explanation for why at a deep psychological level we all have this fear that at some point we're going to show up and not have our clothes on. We're afraid of being naked. And Paul in Romans 2 says that, that it's because we know at a deep 
theological, spiritual level that we've broken God's law and we deserve to be punished. And so what's happening is our consciences are accusing us, Paul says. We live, in other words, with this constant whisper, you're wrong, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're wrong, you deserve to be punished, God's angry at you. And this is, this is how we feel. So when the glory of God, when, the, when the, the glory of the light of the, you know, God comes down, it's fear. Because I'm wrong. And in the light of his holiness, I can't help but feel just how wrong I am. But there's also, the Bible not only teaches us why we're afraid, it also teaches us what we do with our fear. And we go back to that, you know, passage again back in Genesis 1, and you'll see Adam and Eve were afraid because they were naked. And what they do? They hid. And I was thinking, this is, you know, this is the scene where when I was a kid, my mom, I would get in trouble during the day, and my mom would say, when your dad gets home, you better watch out. And then I would be in the living room, and all of a sudden I would hear the car door slam outside, and what's the kid do? Run for the bedroom as fast as you can and throw the sheets, you know, throw the covers over him as if that's really going to hide him from his dad. But who cares, right? Dad's coming to whoop me. I better get out of here and get away as, as far away as I possibly can. And that's exactly what the Bible says we're doing. You know, we're all trying to hide. We're all looking for safety. We know we should be punished. And so when God comes, we want to get away. We want to withdraw. Like the turtle, we want to shrink down into our shell to make sure we don't get hurt. And that's what Adam and Eve did. They hid. And here's how this works in our lives, okay? We try to take control of our lives. We don't feel safe with God. Because... We're sinful and he's angry at us. We don't feel safe with him. And so what we do is instead of looking to him, we look to other things for security. So we begin to think, you know, well, I'm safe because I've got a good job. Or I'm safe because, you know, this person loves me and thinks I'm beautiful. Or I'm safe because my bank account is full. Or I'm safe because, you know, at the end of the day, I've got good friends and I've got a family that will love me no matter what. Or I'm safe because I'm a good person and God loves good people. And the problem is, is that all these things that we look to for safety are uncertain. And so most of us live with this terrible anxiety all the time. And so I'm safe because my bank account's full and then the stock market goes down 2%. And what happens? Boom, anxiety. Or I'm safe because, you know, this relationship, uh, as long as this person loves me and thinks I'm great, then it's okay. And then all of a sudden there's conflict in that relationship and then there's anxiety. And so we all live with fear because we're turning away from God and turning to other things. And so then the third thing the Bible teaches us about our fear is what's underneath it. And the root, what's happening in all of these cases, that all of our fears all come from, really, at the end of the day, a fear of God. We don't trust God. We don't feel safe with him. We don't believe that he's good and that he's committed to doing us good. We think ill of him. We try to avoid him. And if you remember the story of Adam and Eve, again, I hate to keep, you know, let's keep going back there. If you remember, this is the untruth that Satan planted in their minds. And the Jesus Storybook Bible says it so perfectly. This is the way Sally uh, Lloyd-Jones says it in the the Jesus Storybook Bible. She says, as soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Listen to this. Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. And the snake's words hissed in her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. And that's the unbelief. See, that's what we mean 
when we talk about unbelief. And in each case, when these angels come to the, these people that play a certain parts in the story that God is weaving, when they come, their words are directed straight at the fear and the unbelief of those to whom they're sent. Fear not. I mean, take, take Zechariah, for example. A few weeks ago we looked at this, right? Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Well, what's Zechariah afraid of? He's afraid of his impotency in his old age. He's in the temple and he's, he wants a son more than anything else. And he's in the temple and he's begging God for a son. But he's lost heart. He's given into despair, right? He's, he's given up hope. He doesn't believe any longer that God is good and wants to do him good. And so the angel says, God's going to give you a son. And do you remember what Zechariah says? He says, well, how, how shall I know this? I mean, classic, almost, almost formulaic statement of unbelief. I mean, he's cynical. He, he doesn't believe it's going to happen. That's, that, that's impossible. I don't believe that you're able to overcome my impotency in old age. And the angel reprimands him for his unbelief and strikes him dumb. Can't speak. So every time, see, the problem, what happens is, is there's this fear. And, and the fear is this unbelief where it really is a fear in God. God, I don't feel safe with you. I, I'm guilty and you are holy. And therefore, when you're coming, I assume you're coming to strike me down. And this unbelief just works itself out in all these different areas of our lives. Let me give you a couple of examples from my life. Uh, two pretty classic male kinds of ways that this happens. The first is work. Let me talk about my work for a minute in light of unbelief. I'm prone to drivenness in my work. Now, it's good to work hard, but it's possible to work too hard. <laughs> and so if I think, you know, where, why am I so driven? I mean, why is it so important to me? I work long hours. I do everything. You know, why this drivenness in my work? And the reality is it's because I'm naked and I'm afraid. And so I'm trying through my work to clothe myself, right, with success or with the approval of other people or whatever it might be. But, you know, why do I need those things? Well, it's because I'm unsure about God's love for me. I'm not resting in his love. See, it's unbelief. I take money. Okay, I struggle to be generous. I do. I like to stockpile money. Why? Because I don't believe God when he says in Hebrews 13, listen to this, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Because I will never leave you or forsake you. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. And I, I, I can't confidently say that. I, I can't. There's unbelief. I don't trust that God will prove to be my helper and come through for me. And so I got to, you know, so if you, if you look closely enough at these areas of your life, you'll see that behind all of your anxieties and fears is, is unbelief. It's the, it's the sin underneath all your other sins. We still believe the lie. God doesn't love me. It reverberates in our soul and casts doubt on everything he does. So why, what, you know, let me ask, where are you afraid? Do you yet understand that what the real issue is? That you don't trust God. That he scares you to death. <laughs> Being in his hands sounds like the worst possible scenario because you don't believe he's good and that he'll do good to you. You're not confident he'll come through and that's what's really going on. That's the sin behind every other sin. And if we're going to live well and be whole, then that's what needs to be healed in us. And that's exactly what happens in this passage. Because look, see, the first instinctual reaction of the shepherds was fear. But then there's a transformation that happens in the story. Do you see? And by the end of the story, verse 20, they are glorifying and praising God. And this is exactly what happens in all of these stories. There's this change that takes place from fear 
and unbelief at the beginning to joy in Jesus by the end. So Zechariah, you know, at first is very afraid and full of cynicism and doubt. But by the end, God opens his mouth. And you remember what the first thing Zechariah does when God opens his mouth? He sings. Or you have Mary, at first, troubled and full of fear. But by the end, what's she doing? She's singing too. And so there's this transition. And the theme of this passage in many ways here in Luke 2 is joy. Because look, a number of different things here. Look at, the, look at the verse 10 in the angel's message. Look what the message is. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. This is the gospel of joy. That's literally what it means. And then, but then again, you see joy in the angels joyfully displayed in their singing. There's an angelic choir that comes in in verses 13 and 14 that begins to lead all of the creation in joyful celebrative worship of the coming of the Christ into the world. And then thirdly, as I've already noted, the passage culminates in verse 20 in the joy that these shepherds experience upon visiting the child in Bethlehem. They return glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard. So joy is the theme of this passage, the gospel of joy. I mean, Christianity is joy that triumphs over fear and unbelief. So look there again, fear not, verse 10, for I bring you the gospel of joy. The Apostle Paul wrote to uh, the, the letter of Galatians to the churches in Asia Minor that had been infiltrated by false teachers that were trying to bring people back, you know, from the freedom of the gospel back under the law, back into a performance-based religion. And in verse 15 of chapter 4, Paul asks this simple question. It's really great. He says, what happened to your joy? I mean, religious people are grumpy people. Or they're calloused or, un, you know, unfeeling. But there's no joy. I mean, and what the overriding characteristic of Christianity is joy. The Roman Catholic Church, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Roman Catholic Church centuries ago, the, the, cap, the, the church's admission policy was when they went to examine people for admission into the Roman Catholic Church, they asked this question, is there joy in your life? And if there wasn't, they said, then you're not a Christian. Can you imagine that as a test for true Christianity? I mean, I, I, feel, I say this all the time, and it's worth you know, saying again this morning, what I want to say to most of the Christians that I know is if you believe the good news in your heart, would you please notify your face? I mean, if you want to get inside of this and just think about it a little bit, take how does joy get expressed in this passage and in all the other passages? Through singing. So the angels sing for joy. And so I want, do we sing like a people who are overwhelmed with joy? One of the things we started to do in our family is when times where we would typically pray at the dinner table or putting the kids to bed at night, we started to sing. Sing prayers. Because we want to be a joyful people. I mean, we want to, we, you know, this is what the gospel does. It comes in and it takes fear and it turns it into joy and you begin to sing. It scares me for a lot of us to think about those things. But let me slow down just a minute and let's look here. In verse 20, in a little more detail, we're told that these shepherds began to glorify God. Do you see that? This is what happened in their heart. They began to glorify God, and that Greek word is the word doxa, which is the word for doxology, which means to, to worship or to ascribe worth or value or significance to something. And so the baby born in the manger in Bethlehem became for them the most important thing in their life. That baby became the thing 
around which all of the rest of their life revolved. He was the weightiest, the most significant, the most important thing to them. And the result was, because they glorified him, they began to be overwhelmed with the significance of what they had seen and heard. It was so precious to them. They so treasured treasured the experience that we're told there in verse 20, they began to praise him. In other words, their joy over the birth of Christ was so real in their hearts that it burst forth in conversation and song and celebration and evangelism. They, I mean, they couldn't help themselves. They had to talk and sing to one another and tell everyone they met about what they had seen and heard. That's what it means to become a Christian. And that's what we need, this kind of joy. And the reason is the demands of belonging to this Christmas story. I mean, the reason why the angel went right after the fear and unbelief of Zechariah and Joseph and Mary is because God knew, and these shepherds, he knew they had a part to play, and they could not play that part in the story unless they overcame their fear. If Joseph did not confront his fear of losing his reputation and losing control of his life, he would not have played the part God had assigned him. He needed a joy that was greater than the joy he experienced in being a quote-unquote righteous man. And that's exactly what we need too. You see, the way you overcome fear is through joy in Jesus. And so the third thing we've got to look at then this morning is, then how do you get joy in Jesus to overcome fear and unbelief? And it's right here in this passage, if you look more closely with me at verse 10. And the angel said to them in verse 10, Fear not, for behold, the gospel of joy. You have to behold the gospel of joy. See, if you're afraid, it's because you're not beholding the gospel of joy. If you're beholding the gospel of joy, you won't be afraid. Well, then, what is the gospel of joy? See, this is what we have to do. So in verse 11, the angel begins to go on. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then the choir of angels add further explanation in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So there are a number of things here. First, there's the promise of a Savior. That there is one who can help us. That there is one who's been born to deliver us from the curse and dominion of sin. One who would come and would speak into our fear. But secondly, also, there's the promise that the result of his work is this, that now God's favor, God's favor rests on us. Do you see this in verse 14? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. God's pleased with us. He's not angry anymore. We don't have to hide anymore. I mean, the phrase, those with whom he's pleased, is really one word in the Greek, and it means something like acceptable or desirable. In other words, the lie is just that. It's a lie. God does love us. I mean, look at what he's, he, look at what he's done. He loves us. We are those with whom he is pleased. And how can that be? I mean, how can it be that that would be true? And it's the, the answer is the baby who was born. And this baby, Jesus, has come into the world to live the life that we should have lived. He is to be our righteousness. If you look at Hebrews 10, that we read as a call to worship, it, it, we're told that, that through his work, he has perfected us forever. That because Jesus came, Jesus came, and he is the one who loved the Lord his God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and loved his neighbor perfectly as he loved himself. Jesus is the one who you know, never disobeyed his parents unless they were wrong. But lived in complete submission to his parents, even as a child. And I think our, you know, I think our songs, our, our song, the songs that we sing at Christmas try to get, kind of try to get into this, right? I mean, Away in the Manger, 
no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus lay down a sweet head. You know, the, the, the song goes on to say, no crying he made. And I think that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of in my entire life. What baby doesn't cry? Is it sinful to cry? Jesus didn't come out of the womb being able to say, hey, mom, I need something to eat. Right, but so we're we're reaching what we're doing in these songs that we sing is we're reaching for this idea that this baby was unlike any other baby because he was one who came to be just like us, to be tempted just like we 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 are, yet without sin. And we're grasping for what that means. We're trying to figure out how it is that that could be possible. But he has come to be for us through his life of obedience, the righteousness that causes us to be able to go into the presence of God and to stand there unashamed because. We are loved and accepted as if we performed all that Jesus performed on our behalf. But he is not only to be that. Remember where his life ends up. He ends up on a cross. And why does his life end up on a cross? Because he must not only live the life we should have lived, but he must die the death that we should have died. Because, indeed, because of our sin, the wrath of God is coming down upon us. And yet God's solution so that he could come and enter into relationship with us is not to bring his wrath down upon us, but to bring it down upon his son. And the result is exactly what Hebrews 10 says. Now, because the wrath of God came down upon Jesus, he remembers our sins no more. That's the gospel of joy. Please notify your face. Right? But notice there. I want you to make sure in verse 10 to notice the all people. You see that? Verse 10. Fear not, for I behold, I bring you the gospel of joy that will be for all people. In other words, no one's excluded. So if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're wondering if you're invited to the party, the answer is an emphatic yes. There is no sin that could disqualify you. There is no one who is disqualified because there is no one who's qualified. But then there's a third thing, and then I'm done. And the third thing is just this, that we're it's a promise here that it is his work and not our work that accomplishes this, that God indeed is pleased with us, that he does love us. The question has been answered. The lie is just that. It's a lie. God, God indeed has come all the way from heaven to earth that he might enter into a relationship with us and love us. He's come because he loves us. And the promise is that it is his work and not our work that accomplishes this reconciliation that we, that we celebrate at Christmas. Because you see, the religious impulse is the most direct expression of unbelief. In other words, what happens in unbelief is it turns us back into religion. And so we view God a lot of times in the same way. God is just kind of this glorified cosmic Santa Claus who has a list and checks it twice to make sure he knows who's naughty and nice. And then he passes out his blessings accordingly. Jesus has come and he's ripped to shreds. Santa's list. Because you see, the way to deal with, with your fear of God, a lot of times we say, is, is to be good, is to follow the rules, so that he'll see that I'm good, and then he'll be pleased with me, but that won't lead to true joy. In fact, Paul says the opposite. It'll, lead, it'll just lead to uh, discouragement and despair. True joy comes from celebrating what you could never have accomplished on your own. It comes from feeling your need and, and your absolute desperation And the most joyful people are the people who have experienced deep despair and then at the last possible second have been rescued from it. Think about it this way. The kids are coming back in. Think about it this way. 
what would, if you went out on a sailing trip with a friend and you got offshore a little bit and you couldn't see the land and then at the end of the day you came back in and you began to see the land, you think, oh, wow, land, that's pretty. Isn't that great? Wow, thank you. I'm back on land. Everything's okay. Imagine if you went on a deep sea fishing trip and you went, you know, 10 miles out and the engine malfunctioned and the boat began to take on water and you had to, you know, get in the life raft and you began to paddle your way back and it took you three or four hours to, hours to paddle your way back. When land came in sight, how excited are you going to be? Excited. What if you were on a boat that went down in the middle of the Atlantic and you spent 35 days on a raft and you went through three or four experiences where you were sure at any moment you were going to die? And then at the end of that 35 days, all of a sudden there was land. You see, the sense of joy comes from the, the depth of the despair that you feel. Let me, let me illustrate this another way. Uh, and I asked my family to be able to tell the story, and then really I'm done. Or I'm almost done, I guess. Um, when my fourth child, Sarah, was born, I had a nephew who was born right alongside of her. So my nephew, who was the firstborn in that family, was born at the time of my, my fourth child. So we already had Isaac and Canaan, uh, Canaan and Isaac and Abby. Uh, we, a Father's Day gathering of my family, we put together this video, and we said, you know, we kind of this picture montage of all and then we at the end we said are you ready for baby number four to my dad and to my grandparents and of course are you ready for baby number four you know drew sneezes on ashley she gets pregnant you know two plus two and but it was hilarious because this is the reaction of my grand of my grandparents it's three kids not enough i mean you got to have a fourth and then we played a trick on him, and at the end, it was Leslie who was pregnant, not Ashley. And all of a sudden, it's, oh! I'm like, what, what, just, what just happened? How? Yeah. Oh, now we're excited. Because it's Leslie and not Ashley. And we didn't even know Ashley was pregnant at the time, but it was a fun trick to play. You know, and why all the screaming? Why all the screaming and celebrating? Because... But part of the story you don't know is Leslie and I have been trying for years to have kids. And we'd hoped and we'd prayed and we'd been disappointed and we'd hoped some more and we'd been praying yet nothing had happened. And so we were losing hope and the doctors have said this may not happen. And we all felt powerless and we knew that if God did not do something, there was no hope. And then he did. And our prayers were answered and he accomplished what we never could accomplish for ourselves. And there was joy. See, that's where the joy comes from. It's a perfect illustration that the joy is directly related to how improbable the event was. And so in order to really begin to experience joy in Jesus, you have to first feel your need and desperation that no amount of good works could ever save you. Because unlike Santa and his elves, God looks beyond outward moral behavior to the inner attitudes and motivations of the heart. You cannot perform in obedience that God will be pleased with. And that's why the shepherds are the perfect choice to be invited to Jesus' birth because they, of all people, were the least likely candidates for the job. I mean, they were the most improbable guests, and I think they knew it, and that's why there was so much joy. And the reason there's so little joy among Christians is that our churches are full of theoretical sinners who are theoretically trusting in a theoretical Savior. Charles Spurgeon has a sermon about the wedding banquet that... that Jesus, uh, that's a parable Jesus uses in Matthew's gospel. And he makes the point that if you're going to throw a feast, you always want to invite beggars to your feast. 
And here's why. He says, because the prim and proper ladies who attend the feast, they come in and the food gets put on the table and they may raise their, raise their eyebrow and say, hmm, very interesting. And lift their pinky finger as they sip their wine or whatever it might be. Or they may, you know, eventually complain about the food of the service, but the beggars, right? The beggars who don't have food to eat, they are so amazed they're even at the feast that they cheer for every dish. Look at the size of that turkey. Can you, those mashed potatoes were the best. I mean, the, that, this is amazing, right? I mean, it's like, hooray, turkey, hooray. Dra-. I mean, they're just going nuts. They cheered every plate. Why? Because they know they have no business being there. And so what Spurgeon says is if, if your life's not like that, if there's not feasting in your life like that, if there's not joy like that, if you struggle to experience this joy in Jesus, it's because you don't see yourself as a beggar. You don't believe salvation's by grace. Because if you really did, if you really saw that you deserve outer darkness, but God has given you life and breath and, and a job, that the, the glory, the light of the glory of God now rests upon you in Jesus, and that those things are all God's gracious gifts, then you'd be feasting, you'd be cheering for every plate. And there will be a pervasive and overriding joy in your life. Which, by the way, is the fruit of the Spirit. And a distinguishing mark of a true believer. But here's what the passage says. But you have to behold it. You have to behold the gospel of joy. And this is, this is the, the very last thing I want to say. This is what celebrating this Christmas is all about. Because the angel says, look, fear not for, behold. Behold, and that Greek word means, look, pay attention. Wake up. In other words... It's not enough to claim to believe it. It has to be real in your hearts. The truth of the gospel has to come home to your heart in a powerful way. It can't just be hearsay. It can't be theoretical. It's got to sink down into the depth of your heart. And the way that happens is to behold. You have to behold. And in order to behold, you've got to do this. You've got to, number one, slow down. Slow down. Number two, pay attention. Look at verse 19. Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. You've got to pay attention. Uh, This is one of those crazy years where Christmas is on Sunday morning. And so we've debated, are we going to do Christmas Eve? We're going to do Christmas morning. And the elders, we looked at one another and said, we're going to do both. Because of all times of the year, this should be a time where we gather to celebrate and worship. And so there's opportunities. Come Christmas Eve. Come back Sunday morning. Figure out the present thing, but if, but if Christmas is about Jesus, then let's pay attention to him and celebrate him. And the third thing I think you've got to do is you have to intentionally find ways to celebrate. We throw a happy birthday Jesus party at our house and, or with my sister and her family, and it's my kid's favorite thing of all the whole Christmas. Of course, it's because there's really good chocolate cake to eat, probably, but we sing happy birthday to Jesus. I mean, so figure out ways to celebrate because it's beholding the gospel. Fear not, for behold the gospel of joy. And that, by the way, is why this meal is so important. Because it is an opportunity, again this morning in the context of worship, for us to behold and celebrate the gospel of joy, to have our fear and our unbelief healed by deep joy in Jesus. And so let's pray as we come to this table this morning together, can we? Lord Jesus, would you do just this? Would you turn our fear and our unbelief into joy as we celebrate this meal together this morning, we pray and confess to you, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. And so we thank you that it is this meal that you have ordained that would help our unbelief. It is by this meal that you come to feed our faith and increase our joy in you. And so we ask that as we gather around your table now, you would do just that. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we prepare ourselves to come to this table,
This is the fourth week in a row we've done this, which is unusual for us, but I need to offer you two reminders just by way of self-reflection and self-examination. First, this is a meal for baptized Christians, for people who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have gone on record with him in some formal setting in a church. And if you are not yet a Christian, then what you need is not this bread and this cup. What you need is the Lord Jesus. And we would appeal to you to put your faith in him, repent of your sins, and trust him. And when you do that, come and talk to us about it so we can get you ready to properly come and celebrate this meal with us. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, we would ask that you just stay in your seat uh, and that you come and, and really investigate and seek us out so we can talk together. But secondly, this is a meal where we celebrate our being reconciled to God the Father through the work of Jesus, his body broken and his blood shed. And so it would be utterly inappropriate for us to come and celebrate and eat and drink to celebrate the reconciliation we have with him if we were not reconciled to one another. And the Bible is very clear. If there's an offense, if there's conflict, if there's some disturbance in a relationship, you've caused offense or you're offended by somebody else, the Bible says go, make that right, and then come to the altar and celebrate. And so we would just tell you, go. There's no shame in that. We're going to do this next Sunday on Christmas morning. So go and do that work this week and come back next Sunday and celebrate this meal with us. But if you're, if you're here and you're a baptized Christian and you're here and your heart is at peace and your life is at peace, there's peace in your relationships, we invite you to come and to celebrate this meal with us this morning. The way we do this is we come down the center aisle, uh, take the cup and the bread and return on the outside back to your seats once everybody's been served, then we will celebrate it together, okay? Uh, my prayer is that as we come as a beggar, Right? And cheer over this meal. That's what I want to see. That's what I'm praying God will do in our hearts as we celebrate this meal together, okay? And so let me say these words. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread at the meal with his disciples and he broke and he said, This is my body broken for you. And after supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. Take, eat, drink. And do this in remembrance of me. The lie of Satan gets dispelled at this table. What else must God do to prove his love for us? Than to send his son. To die the death we should have died. To have his body broken instead of ours. To have his blood shed instead of ours. And so let's come and celebrate him this morning, okay? Uh, Elder candidates and deacons, if you would just, if eight of you would come, I don't, some eight, it doesn't matter, uh, to, to serve uh, the people, come as I pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, do increase our faith, increase our joy, that we might be faithful in our obedience to you. Use this meal in a powerful way in our lives to prepare us for the celebration of Christmas this week. And may you be glorified in us as we do, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
There has never been a feast in the history of the world like this feast. There has never been uh, a meal more worthy to be celebrated than this meal. And so there's never been one that should be accompanied by the kind of joy that should be accompanied by this one. And so, uh, joyfully, take and eat. This is the body of Christ for you. And this is the blood of Christ for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our joy in you is so weak. We confess that our, our, our stomachs and our souls are stuffed so full of trivial things that there's little room left for you. And so we pray that you would work by the power of your Spirit uh, during the, the rest of this service and throughout this holiday season to open our eyes and open our ears to behold and to hear and to take in the gospel of joy until it begins to resonate in our hearts where the places where before fear and unbelief resonated, where joy begins to take over and to captivate us and to become the pervasive reality of our lives that we might be a people above all things who would be known to one another and to our city as a people of great joy in you joy in you, that you might see, be seen to be far more valuable than any earthly thing, and that you might be celebrated for as long as human history would go on, and then forever and ever into all eternity, because you are worthy, because you are the Lamb who was slain. And so we sing of your worthiness, and we celebrate you. Help us in our frail unbelief. We pray these things that you might be glorified in us. We pray them in your name. Amen. Amen. In all the places where we're still limping towards obedience, where sin and, uh, and despair hold captive and sway over our lives, the issue is our unbelief that we are still, at some level, listening to the lie that God does not love us. And so the promise of the benediction is just the opposite. That in light of all we've seen and heard and all that happens around this time of year that we celebrate of the events 2,000 years ago, there's no other conclusion that we could come to. If our faith and trust are in the Lord Jesus Christ, then as I raise my hands over you, the only thing that can be true is that indeed the Father isn't mad at you. He doesn't loathe you. He loves you with an infinite love. And that's the promise of these words. And so receive them and let them heal your heart. And let them give you great joy that would produce a mighty, mighty obedience that would be to the power and the glory of his name. Receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.